the timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way downtown. Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot from Curry! With six tenths of a second remaining. You're listening to the Off Court Podcast on the Harbinger Media Network. It's very important that you support the Harbinger Media Network. Harbinger, Harbinger. And especially support the Mind Refinery, which is producing this show, and uh, Passage, where I've been published. It's the online journal of left Canadian thought and opinion. You can find that one at readpassage.com. And on the Harbinger Media Network, you can hear great shows like Khabib T. Please, of which Nushra was on this show, and 49th, yeah, she was great. And 49th Parahel, hosted by friend of the show and very funny guy, Rob Rousseau. We're building a community that's challenging right-wing corporate media dominance from host to host. Get access to exclusive shows and other supporter-only content at HarbingerMediaNetwork.com. Thanks. Hello, everyone. You are listening to another episode of the Off Court Podcast. I think uh, we don't know what order these are going out in, but this is episode six, so we are half over the halfway mark uh i'm abdul and i'm Aton. yeah we have our first guest on the show today it is nashua hello hi how you doing nashua <laughs> so yeah tell us uh, a little bit about yourself sort of your your background and what you've got working what you're working on with like harbinger and uh you know just stuff podcast not podcast so i am a community-based researcher and facilitator usually in pre-covid times uh, and a graduate student uh, forever. Uh, and I have two shows. One is on hiatus for a bit. Most of them are spring up. But my Harbinger show is Habibti Please, which is a show that does American politics, Canadian politics, and a lot of, I would say, pop culture and uh, other cultural things. And besides that, I'm trying to um, stay sane during this quarantine. That's like every day is a day. Like I completely get that. <laughs> no, it's been... T- and you're in Mississauga, right? Yes, I am in Mississauga. I, I grew up there. It is... um Like, I can't think of a place I would be less sane in during quarantine. <laughs> I... Yeah, I can't defend... I can, can I defend it? I don't know. The people, I guess, are good. <laughs> At least yeah, you have it- a little bit of space between people in Mississauga comparatively to downtown Toronto. Yeah. I will say that, but you are still in Mississauga as Abdul. Yeah, like, out. yeah. thank you for the silver lining. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have a mall. Um, yeah, it, it's... You know what? Second largest mall in Canada. That was that was yeah. my big thing when I moved to Edmonton because I I work for a union here. I I upgraded from the second largest mall in Canada to the largest mall. Um, and <laughs> the differences don't end there. Like Edmonton is a fucking awful place to live, work, and play. But yeah, no. Today we are we are talking about cricket. Now, I'll be honest. I still don't know how to play cricket. I weren't you weren't you uh, weren't you gloating about the eleven hundred pages of material you had to research before? Yes, this? but there was none of it had to do okay, with how okay. the game was All fucking right. played. I I've read a lot about. Apparently, cricket is a high test sport. Whatever that means. Apparently, uh, there's you know things called wickets, runs. There's bowling. Uh, do either of you are either of you cricket people? <laughs> No, I, I. If you told me that you were explaining to me uh, Quidditch right now, I would believe you. Actually, <laughs> yeah, I. I feel like we're supposed to be. Like, I'm surprised you've never played it. I feel like we're supposed to be. Um, I know it as like the thing that like takes up the TV during certain parts of the year in the house. Yeah, that's like my dad will will throw on whenever the India Pakistan cricket game is on. 
my dad will wake up at that hour and make sure he watches it. But like, yeah, like my family was very like we grew up like very, um, you know, oh, Ty Domi, one of us is playing hockey, you know, Tahir Domi. And like, you know, we we definitely became like more of like a hockey family above all else, which was uh, bizarre because all of my brown friends in like Islamic school or whatever would would be talking about cricket and i would be the one hockey kid it's a real inversion of the canadian experience (laughs) but yeah no i i still like don't quite get how it's played but the the sort of rough specifics are bowler batter catchers it's a bit like baseball runs are scored not just you know to home plate but they're based in how much you can how many times you can run between the two ends of the um of the pitch the other thing i should sort of mention before we like start going deep into this episode is like there's a bunch of angles on cricket and it is genuinely one of the most fascinating sports to look at um because of its role in colonization and decolonization like a famous uh socialist writer clr james was a cricket writer uh as part of his like day job um and he he was also you know an incredible incredible like voice in uh, west indies and caribbean socialism um and he talked a lot about uh, cricket's like decolonial power in terms of like asserting uh you know asserting resistance to european colonization um <clears throat> there's a great documentary i highly recommend which i watched uh but will not be included in this called fire in babylon about the west indian cricket team like basically uh you know destroying uh the british uh cricket team uh during the world cup which it's it's absolutely stunning like i i was sick of cricket when i watched it and i still loved it and even in like i'm focusing specifically on india specifically on the subcontinent um and we're also gonna stay away from like the caste politics because that's its own episode and it's really fascinating because like in the same way that like you know we have muhammad ali and other you know jesse owens and other you know sort of monumental civil rights figures uh in sports uh india had its own and also like deliberately erased that guy from history which is even more uh, interesting but yeah no that's uh sort of where we'll go but you know i'll sort of kick it off so uh, here's a little history lesson for all of you. Cricket uh, started in the medieval ages. It is one of the oldest modern sports. Um, and it started in the English countryside before moving to cities and sort of urban areas. So the first mention of cricket in India dates back to 1721 uh, when British sailors played a match in the port of Cambay. Um, and I love this. There's going to be a lot of like racist quotes from British people, especially in this first half. Um, but the, the premier quote from that first match from one of the British officers was when my boat was lying for a fortnight in one of the channels, though the country was inhabited by the coolies, we would, we every day diverted ourselves with playing cricket and other exercises, which, uh, they would come and be spectators of. Um, so it's just like, it's a lot of like casual, uh, racism. Like I love the book i'm drawing from mostly uh which is called the corner of a forgotten field um or the corner of a foreign field uh continually refers to indians as excitable asiatics uh, it's also written by an indian guy which is even funnier but yeah no the first uh the first uh cricket club outside of britain was founded in 1792 uh in bombay um and that's sort of where it begins so <clears throat> already it was basically a way that you know 
British people wanted to impose order over what they saw as like a savage and untamed land. Um, and cricket was a very like key part of like, oh, we're bringing order to this place by playing it. We're able to like return to our British normalcy and our British mannerisms. One quote that stuck with me from my little bit of research was uh, somebody described cricket as not having rules, but laws as sort of a gentlemanly sport. So I, I bet they were touting that a lot when they were basically trying to convince uh, all the people they were colonizing how awesome cricket is to play. Yeah, pretty much. And they had no intention of teaching the natives to play cricket. Mm -hmm. They uh, they treated it as like a, a welcome retreat from the utter strangeness of life abroad. The forum by which the retreat was affected was that other British invention, the social club. So they the the it was called the Bombay Gymkhana. Uh, which was like the the big white social club, and they basically all remained segregated um, and all white until 1947, until partition. Basically, you know, it was this way for a bit. People, obviously, in India, as like India became more, you know, British, so to speak, they still took interest in it. Um, so one officer in civilian uh, civilian officer game said in octet of cricket illiterate aborigines were compelled to join the three resident officials other aborigines were set to work level leveling the ground and preparing a pitch and then he proceeds to talk about how the englishmen had their cricket far from heaven and further from the lords where never in world's history it had been played before and almost never been since uh, which is not true it was definitely played there again um yeah i was i was gonna say what do you what do you think some of these old like english gentlemen if we could give them a time machine so they can see how cricket has evolved in like t20 in india right now basically <laughs> what do you how do you think they would react to seeing uh live footage of that they'd be upset <laughs> yeah. one of the descriptions I, they... I took away was um when i was the first week of this when i was like okay i'm gonna look into this was everybody saying it's like a manly sport Mm -hmm. I think they'd be like horrified that like now not only do brown people play it but like brown women play it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> like, that, I think they'd be that horrified. part might give them more of a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, actually. like I think I think it's pretty funny, but maybe <laughs> I don't know. But I just I think it's interesting though. Um, how do you go to a place and like play a sport in front of them constantly and don't think they they can like pick it up? <laughs> <laughs> like, there's like a bat and a ball like it's not that complicated it's not like a sport like hockey where well, you need like a, a a wild amount of equipment that can't be replicated locally maybe at the time yeah and, and they I were already <laughs> making up their own equipment right like yeah. they're using bamboo mats and shit yeah. <laughs> because like inherently the sport isn't that complicated which what makes it like calling it a gentleman's sport and somehow like some kind of higher level sport from anything else played at the time is part of the comedy because they're just they have a big bat big ball three sticks in the ground they're throwing it at each other you're also allowed to hit people with the ball by the way which is you're not allowed but like it's not considered it, it won't get you ejected like it does in baseball <laughs> yeah like basically the the stuff that colors all of this which which goes right to what you both are speaking about is like just this this assumption that like british rule is permanent right and like mm. cricket was an exercise of that by the way, very small aside, after that match I was just talking about, the civilians wrote to the army men, apologizing for their lack of hospitality, blaming it on the absence of a tea shop uh, in India, which is, like, the most British shit. I fucking, uh, my, for context, like, half my family is in Canada, and the other half is in England. Um, and England also sucks, but Liverpool is good. But it's just, like, it's a very British 
upper class thing to be like the reason i could not succeed is because i didn't have a fucking tea shop near me right like it's like this uh it's such a cliche of every every like british every british thing you've ever heard and yeah like i have a quote here uh where one officer was saying i was i nearly got into serious trouble for i was within an ace of slaughtering an unoffending babu whose curiosity got the better of his discretion I was practicing at net around which was gathered a select little crowd of native gentlemen who, though warned more than once not to come too near, kept on gradually edging in, making their remarks. So yeah, you know, just doing hate crimes on people who come too close to your cricket pitch. And then he gets he gets even crazier. Um, the native mind had not grasped the delicacies and intricacies of Yorker, long hops, and half volleys, but were rather apt to look on at a cricket match as proof of the lunatic propensities of their masters, the sahibs, and to wonder what possible enjoyment they could find in running about in the sun all day after a leather ball. Uh, the only Indian uh, with a connection to cricket in the great city of Calcutta was the club's official. Yeah, so they, they looked at it and they saw it as a Monty Python skit as well. They thought, what the heck are these guys doing? Yeah, <laughs> like they're wasting time. And it must seem fucking crazy because, like, there are there are Indian sports that are, you know, considered that are, you know, predate cricket, obviously, mm -hmm. that are from the land. Uh, Kabaddi is one of them, which is like a, a combination of like wrestling and tag. But it's it is interesting because like those sports emerge out of a like sort of training for life right like they emerge out of out of training for stuff like martial warfare or hunting or you know sort of uh enforcing you know actual like social laws or especially you know fighting right like um intertribal and interregional warfare but cricket has no relationship to any of that so it's like you know you wouldn't even be able to make a compelling argument that these are like oh these are giving you basic life skills because the life skills are like all kind of orientalist in nature they're all about like taming yourself and and being like a perfect gentleman right mm -hmm. but they did start paying in tips uh they did start paying the natives to bowl because everyone wanted to like bat and field and do the exciting stuff and they did start training people to bowl for them uh and they there's a lot written about you know how terrible they were at bowling and stuff like that but yeah no the first indians to like genuinely play cricket were the parsis uh, or the zoroastrians of bombay they began and this is like i think there's really interesting class analysis to be made here because they were basically the the most well-to-do uh under british colonial rule in india the zoroastrians were merchants and commission agents they were the british middlemen for the opium trade in china um and they really like sort of got absorbed into the colonial apparatus like much much quicker than hindus muslims or or anyone else did um so they you know by the time you know england or was conquering the sort of the last couple of provinces it, it didn't have dominion over the parsis were already um wearing sort of western dress uh listening to western music and uh, speaking the english language sort of preferable to their own the quote i have here with his elastic and fascinating character half oriental half occidental um he took readily to cricket too <laughs> um and yeah like that's they these are the guys who who really like kicked off cricket in india for for everyone they were playing as cricket as early as the 1830s they founded their first cricket club in 1848 the oriental cricket club <laughs> and that was the first example of and it was a parsi only club and that was the first example of you're going to hear this word a lot communal cricket um that is uh 
each community has its own cricket team or cricket club. The Indians, Muslims, Hindus, each fielded their own teams. Um, and the Parsis were considered much more advanced than they, owing to their great greater imitation of everything European. Um, and in August 1878, the London Graphic ran an illustrated feature on Bombay cricket, commenting that the Parsis, who have long shown themselves superior to the prejudices with which other races are more or less fettered, have come out quite strong as cricketers. Yeah, it's really weird to think about how, like, in my dad's lifetime, because he grew up in, in Amritsar, India, like, this was still a thing, like, these sort of very specific communitarian, uh, like, objectives of cricket, and this, like, idealization of cricket um, as, like, the, the, the game of kings and, like, something to be, uh, like, aspired to. Um, Eitan, I don't know if you know this, but, like, there's there's two really two kinds of brown people and there's like you know normal people and then there's people who are more british than british mm. like the the uncle raj types who are like what the british did was they civilized uh they're almost always like third generation vice we wouldn't, we or wouldn't like have that. had yeah. trains or anything without them yeah <laughs> are, I, I know people like that are you guys aware <laughs> I, I i know this is going to seem very out of left field but uh, have you seen uh, at least abdul the cartoon the boondocks uh, yes. Yeah, so, yes. So are they? Are you saying that there are Uncle Ruckuses sort of like roaming around in India, but they're like cricket bros as well? A hundred percent. Like they live in like stately houses that were built a hundred years ago by slaves. They love the railway and they like speak. They speak English with more of like a proper affect than anyone in England does right now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and they like, like love the East India tra- Tea Company or whatever the trading company. <laughs> they're like they were good. Yes. Like they. Were, like, they brought us stuff they gave us commerce the railroad civilized us yeah we wouldn't have railroads without them (laughs) even though we built them are are is this kind of uh of character of 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 brown dad basically like does he approve of where cricket has uh, evolved in recent years as well probably not to where it's evolved now with the ipl and the and 2020 cricket but like definitely india where it is now although granted they'll probably cheer for england before they cheer for india and the uh and like cricket matches but yeah it's a very specific kind of kind of brown dude yeah it's it's very like you know them when you see them because they always speak with a fake ass british accent too yeah um So, like, eventually the natives did start dominating and they did start getting really interested in cricket because Hindus uh, followed suit with the Parsis. And, you know, over a long enough period of time, people do get better at things, which I don't (laughs) think the British uh, (laughs) realize. Which is interesting how some the the British people somehow got worse at cricket over time. Like how. How do your how do your uh, competitive genes regress as you like colonize other places and and inherit their like like suck up their cultures like Kirby? You know what I mean? You'd think they'd get. <laughs> I don't want to say it's it might be a facet of like you know uh, noble inbreeding. I was gonna <laughs> like... say that. I was gonna say that. I was like no. I was like, I was like, mm. <laughs> like their genes are a little close. Is it is it reverse racism when we're doing phrenology on on uh, old white people? Is it is that I don't the same know. thing? No. Like Pakistanis have cousin marriage as an issue. I was looking at an academic article yesterday. It's a okay. lot, but so I think we're allowed to say it. I yeah, think we're allowed no, to I, say it. Oh, absolutely. I'm gonna mediate this and say that you got the pass. Yeah. 
Thank you. <laughs> I'm Thank taking you. that mantle. This is, you know, much like they had neutral umpires who weren't of the religion. You know, I've, I've yeah. brought a Jew in to, uh, to mediate <laughs> my thoughts on which would also be, Which would be really funny, though, if you could find, like, a British white guy who would, like, push back on any of the notions of cricket being anti-colonial in some way that you were saying. I don't know if we could find somebody who'd be down to be on this podcast and bring up those <laughs> kinds of politics. Uh, I could I could find my uh one of my uncles for sure. Oh, there you go. I could find, <laughs> yeah, sure I could I could, I could find it. like a brown idpole person who who would be like, "No, yeah, we have to revert <laughs> oh, back no. to like breaking rocks because that's just, liberation." Right, we just I, I could through. find that person. I could find that person on Twitter. We got to just look through the Doug Ford voter list basically and we could find we can find a couple. Yeah, I I have a friend of mine whose uh, uncle also lives in Edmonton who's like a huge Modi/Trump supporter um and also like I've been to their house for dinner a couple of times and argued relentlessly about the the value of the fucking railroad and stuff like that. It is again completely unhinged. They're enjoying um, Adamson's barbecue right now, probably. <laughs> anyway, sorry, that's too timely. Oh hell yeah, I'm going on. I'm going on Minion Death Cult today to talk about Adamson's barbecue, oh, nice. and I'm so fucking excited. Uh, an English observer, Captain Philip Trevor, uh, on the popularity of cricket, started said this: the crowd that demonstrated at the close of the match uh, was more attractive to the artist than the administrator. A few of us who saw it will forget that surging, lowing, multicolored throng. Its reproduction defies the pen and the brush. But the faces of those who composed it were an ugly expression of the vast multitude. Not a thousand knew the name of the thing they were looking at. Not a hundred had even an elementary knowledge of the game of cricket, but they were dimly conscious <laughs> that in some particular or another, the black man had triumphed over the white man. And they ran hither and thither, gither gibbering and chattering and muttering vague words of evil omen. Yeah, uh, I would have collected a lock, uh, I think that's 100,000, um, of rupees on the ground to prevent this if money could have prevented it. So, like, that was right after the one, one of the first ever victories of Parsis over the British cricket teams. Um, and already, you know, you can get nervous. I don't I don't even think I, there's a dog whistle in there. It's just, like, abject racism. <laughs> so, yeah, like, they definitely got better at the game. You know, already it started generating controversy um because like it it was seen as like uh an indian's love of like an unhealthy subservience to the values and culture of the foreigner which like i will get into in the second half but like i personally think is a little i think that's a that's a bad faith reading of it um and it's worth it's worth considering in england cricket began the countryside and moved to towns um it it was an upper class game in england um, in India, it actually started as a working class game. It went from urban areas to the countryside, and it was a working class sport because it was first picked up by working class people who served British cricketers. Um, and so the nature of how these games were formed in the two regions are like super different, and I think that's sort of key to keep in mind. And there's a lot in here about like the Indian cricketer will never be the equal of the Englishman. I doubt if the Indian cricketers are ever going to turn out a team uh, as good as like an English country club. Mm -hmm. um, and the British sort of saw it as this idea that like the game would bind ruler to ruled. <laughs> um, it would promote racial harmony and thus confirm the continuity of the empire. And they, you know, British administrators, administrators in India used this idea of like, it was a conventional politeness, right? Like it was a way that, that we would make sure that, any disagreements were only ever solved uh, or mediated through the cricket pitch. And 
the Parsis, who, again, like when you talk about Uncle Raj ass uh, motherfuckers, um, basically took took this idea that like cricket would always be segregated and the British would always be better. They really took that to heart. Like one Parsi remarked, how I ardently wish that in this age of new invention, someone would invent a chemical preparation or some such thing, which would convert a black face into a fair one <laughs> specifically <laughs> in response to uh, the British saying that they would always be better at cricket and that like Indians would always be sort of second class uh, cricket people. Which is a, not, like, again, not a particularly alien thing to even hear now, uh, especially in India, which is, like, on one hand, it's really sad. On the other hand, it's like, I, you know, it can be really hard to sympathize with these people um, mm-hmm. a lot of the time. It seems, it seems so far from the truth, because from what everything I understood, and I, I did, a, a, you know, I'm trying not to talk about it too much, because I'm sure we'll talk about where cricket goes more later, but... You know, cricket seems like a much one of the more most realized forms of like counter hegemony that I've ever seen in terms of like a, a colonial project. So it's very interesting to see that this like that doesn't internalize in some uh, Indian 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 elders, especially who instead internalize this sort of like um, yeah, the, like the, this mystification of cricket that the British rulers brought to them. You know, do you have any yeah. anything to say about that, Dashwa? No, no, this is like, you know what's sticking with me right now? The scene from Bend It Like Beckham, where the dad is like, <laughs> you know, when I came here and I played cricket, they were racist to me, but I was yeah. still good at this game. You know, like that dialogue? <laughs> and he was like, that's what they're going to do to you in soccer. And and I, I think it's interesting because like just thinking about the mysticism of like cricket and being good in sports, it's it's just kind of like... I don't know. The dad could have been like, yeah, I'm better than you at it. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Like, reclaim your sport. But the dad was just like, they're always going to be like this, the white people with us and the dynamic will exist even if we accomplish the most. And it just kind of makes me think about like, um, I don't know, like, just admit that you're better. I don't know. It sounds like race science-y, but like maybe, maybe people of color are better at sports because we're like built to survive better. I don't know. We're stronger. <laughs> maybe. I say and this- it's with like an iron deficiency (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's not it's not an incorrect assumption right because it's like you're also counting in like you know now basketball colleges uh, will specifically recruit people from from specific tribes in uh africa right like uh because you know those tribes are predisposed to height like minute bull and and his son bull bull come from like uh, a a tribe of you know a couple of thousand people that undoubtedly has the tallest people in the world right like even in india like you know a lot of a lot of life outside of agrarianism was spent like hunting and running after things <laughs> you know what i mean like this is the nature of like keeping a, a village safe incurring like not just other humans but also animals and stuff like that yeah, and we've um, and we've seen the result of uh, you know people shoving bread pie in their mouth for multiple generations. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 like, and inbreeding, as we mentioned. Yeah, and like sorry for like that. I I kind of derailed from you, but like I was just thinking about. I was like, yeah, like why why are the mysticism of like cricket and like why is it so noble and manly when it's like no, they just like gave a framework to people who could play it better. Pretty much, and who also innovated on the game in like some really interesting and like crazy ways. Um. 
And, like, it was a children's game in the medieval ages. Like, this idea of gentlemanly games <laughs> yeah, they is, keep saying is it's such dog shit. Because <laughs> it was, like, it was literally a way for kids to... This is one of those things where, like, reading this, I'm like, man, not having the internet or phones uh, back, like, if you go back uh, far enough just shows how fucking crazy people <laughs> went. Like, their intensity of, like, love for the game and, like, you know, cricket is a game that's typically played over a period of one of three to five days, right? Mm-hmm. For like usually sixteen hours a day, or like you know ten hours a day. It's just like, and this is what people did for fun. It's and- it, it it's actually like it shows how this was um, basically a children's game that was overcomplicated by people because back in the day, like I was gonna say, you mentioned how there was no internet back then. You know how like when you were a kid, like. I don't know if you did this, Nashua, but, like, maybe Abdul did because he was, like, a, a young boy once. But, like, you would just <laughs> go in the forest or something and come up with, like, sports or come up with activities where you throw a ball at a stick, like, literally, like, cricket. It's basically whole generations of people back in the day before internet would never grow out of that phase and continue to come up with <laughs> new wild things to do where they can just throw objects at each other at other things and then <laughs> crickets like and they went on to just overcomplicated yeah. with cricket infantile over, sport like... exactly <laughs> imagine someone saying these things about stickball <laughs> yeah i like, mean you know? like, can we just call it stickball like people yeah. are gonna get so mad um <laughs> big cricket fans yeah like there was this whole thesis and like a literal like approach academic approach to empire and colonialism called the empire of cricket uh, you know, where, where someone described first the hunter, the missionary, and the merchant, and now the cricketer. This is the history of British colonization. And of these civilizing influences that last may perhaps be said to do the least harm, uh, the hunter exterminates deserving species. The missionary may cause quarrels, you know, not, uh, you know, not exterminate uh, indigenous people. Um, the soldiers may hector, the politician blunder, but cricket unites as in India, the rulers and the ruled. It also provides a moral training and education, pluck and nerve and self-restraint far more valuable to the character of the ordinary native than the mere learning by heart of a play by Shakespeare. And like the empire of cricket was uh, a, a legitimate sort of academic framework by which uh, British scholars thought they could perpetuate colonialism forever. As we're about to see in the next section, before we go to break, that was not the case, uh, and it actually gets pretty rad. But yeah, there's your like basic foundation for cricket in India. These days, we are completely bombarded with video content, whether it's a series, movies, or documentaries about, I don't know, Carol Baskin and the Tiger King. That's the best documentary there is, right guys? Screenworthy tries to cut through all this noise and talk about what it all means from a cultural standpoint and how it affects the future of filmmaking. Hosts Kyle Bodanis and the Smart Alecky Mine Refinery creative team talk to content creators and filmmakers about the state of the industry while diving deep into noteworthy projects that arrive on your screen. Screenworthy drops every other Tuesday on the Mine Refinery podcast channel, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I'm going to tell you guys the most British story uh, ever told. Um, and it was probably the most key. This was actually foundational to creating the freedom movement and also uh, creating a parallel legal framework in which the Indians could resist colonization. And it was, I, I'm calling it the Polo War. <laughs> uh, that's not what it's actually called. It doesn't actually have a name, but uh, this sort of describes it much better. Okay, so the only 
thing more appealing to you know inbred british soldiers uh than cricket it turns out was the game of polo you know ponies and horses um uh hockey with hockey with horses i guess the esplanade parade ground in bombay was where indians were playing cricket and where they were getting very good at cricket um but then the british officer class decided we have horses now we have ponies we want the turf so we can play polo and they got cricket banned from the esplanade so they could play polo which uh pissed off a lot of a lot of uh you know native indians you know their struggle to evict polo from the esplanade it's it shows like very how quickly indians basically made cricket their game this was in 1885 there is an access issue here because these are both british games but like polo you require a horse most people uh it turns out did not own horses yeah i thought i i bet they thought they were very smart when they decided that polo would be the sport and that most of the people that they're ruling over probably can't afford these fucking beautiful horses and it's it's one of these things where it's like uh once uh, polo was banned hundreds of like of like indian kids whose cricket had been interrupted or displaced for for the convenience of 10 polo players by the way there was this was 10 people who got it banned started like going out on mass to the bombay presidency association to complain uh which was like fairly unprecedented at the time in any part of india to like have uh, hundreds of like young people just like start pushing back and you know they those were hundreds representative of like thousands right because like people would be playing cricket mm-hmm. day in day out on this like big ground where it was really the only place where like the turf was good enough to play cricket and the horses would obviously rip up the turf and make it very hard to play cricket as well yeah and like at first they tried to coexist but then a horse ran over a parsi cricketer uh who had to be taken to hospital and so they just banned it entirely and basically this was one of the first times where they turned british colonial law against england and they petitioned with the help of a lawyer they petitioned using the idioms of british justice you know basically saying how could you practice democracy at home and deny it abroad how could you keep your turf protected and make us play cricket on a ground so manifestly unsuited to it and then they they ended with a direct challenge to colonial authority that basically said you know um even women in england have discovered that they have what are called rights and yet the polo players have been uh, depriving native cricketers of their right of utilizing the esplanade ground for cricket Mm. um they they insisted that there was no inequality between natives of india and anglo indians and then demanded that they get the esplanade back under the conditions narrated above (laughs) which the the viceroy of uh the viceroy of bombay at that time was a famous cricketer who who had uh, actually capitulated to the polo players they walked back on it because they actually feared a fucking uprising (laughs) Um, they they ended up dividing it like like divorced parents do where like on tuesdays and thursdays polo players can play and on mondays wednesdays and fridays cricket players can play but this was yeah this is a really underseen example of like oh the freedom movement has a a lot of its roots especially in big cities like bombay and calcutta in cricket and it was generally one of those moments where like oh they took away our game and we're not going to let this stand um and especially because you know people in bombay were largely insulated from the most brutal elements of like indian of like british colonialism uh, unlike people in the countryside which is by the way still true to this day so it's like right there i have like this is to me the dumbest british 
the dumbest, most British way that like something like this could happen because an argument over polo and cricket sounds like the most boring shit in the world to me. And, yeah, and I mean. the most boring rotation of sports. No offense. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I don't understand. I like I I'm just like why these two. <laughs> they couldn't pick basketball like i know that's like silly but like, like i don't know like polo i still can't wrap my head around like where are you keeping your horses in the middle of bombay how many people can have these horses where's the stable exactly and i think i think part of this and maybe this will be a continuing theme throughout our discussion but like it's kind of impressive how uh countries like india went on to take on cricket while like you know, America and Canada had to, like, basically take sports like cricket and polo and make them stupider and more aggressive, which we will also <laughs> talk about in our hockey episode. But, like, hockey and baseball, at the end of the day, are simplifications of those sports, right? And those are – it's funny because those are the colonizer just going and, like, staying where they, like, colonize while the places where they couldn't really have as many people hang around up until this day, they took the sport and sort of made it their own, which I, f I find fascinating. And it's it's also, like, especially interesting because, like, polo itself is an Indo-Iranian sport, right? Like, it, it is an indigenous sport for Parsis and Hindus, but at that point, the British had a monopoly on it, and uh, Indians began having a monopoly on, on cricket. Um, but and this is again i go back to like a very specific class analysis when looking at year because like polo ponies which are very specifically bred as well right some dude in bombay's job was to breed fucking polo ponies um they weren't available to everyday indians uh whereas like cricket was uh cheap easy to get into source of recreation and it's like this very interesting swappage of like oh like disenfranchised indians who no longer have access to like horses and polo ponies have completely given up the game of polo but they've taken up the cause of cricket and this challenge to colonial authority too uh also led to like people being able to appoint their own umpires so before it was only british empires which no one trusted for obvious reasons like they would make call specifically for cricketers and now you know the parsis the hindus and the muslims could appoint uh neutral or their own umpires as well hmm. um in 1889 the parsis won a very famous victory over the bombay gymkhana that led to 30,000 people celebrating in the street and was like one of the first major victories it was called like the the all india championship or something like that i didn't write it down but it was like the the game of india and yeah they they won with again this is where i don't understand cricket in a low scoring game the they won by 53 runs in the fourth innings i don't know what the fuck that means apparently it meant that they they won by a margin by a very slim margin this sort of leads directly into the freedom movement and partition where it's like you know um this cricketing victory in 1889 and then further victories in the next 10 years uh was sort of seen as a sign that india or asia was like shaking off its shackles right and there was like again there's a cast element in here that's its own episode and that's very worth getting into we're not going to talk about that um and the Europeans and were on one side, and at this point, like even the Parsis, the Hindus, and the Muslims were on the other side. This is also probably the one arena in India where Muslims and Hindus did not like hate each other, uh, because the enemy was so clearly articulated in like the British who had their own fucking tea tents and their own hammocks and napping spaces 
where they could play sleep during the game uh, in between uh, going up to play in innings and stuff like that. And they were, yeah, they're basically seen of, uh, by 1906, 1907, like this constant run of like Parsi and Hindu victories were seen as an assertion of like a suppressed national spirit. Triumph on the tr- cricket field attracted attention in a manner that political sloganeering and social uplift couldn't. And the Anglo-Indian papers especially, in very like in very British Indian way, um, uh, were quoted as saying that uh, Hindus and Indians have raised themselves in the estimation of the European public to an extent to which no other qualification on their part could have done. Yeah, it's extremely condescending. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's not that we're we're asserting ourselves, it's that we are now more European because we're beating them at this game, right? Which again, very very Anglo-Indian approach to this sort of stuff. The freedom movement actually fell apart for a while between 1930 and 1932. It it collapsed for the first time then reemerged uh in the Second World War, but sort of in between what kept the hope of like a uh, uh, Indian state alive was cricket, where rudderless nationalists would express their like racial animosities through it and like there's a good example of, like ck Nayudu, who's like a well-known cricketer who was like a he was given a military post but his job was to play cricket and part of his military post included a double-storied mansion a, d- a dodge car and a massive salary <laughs> and between 1930 and 1945 both right-wing left-wing liberal and uh communist elements all supported this guy because he was like literally the 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 linchpin upon which like british indian dream like nationalist dreams like stood <laughs> um, which is yeah that is like these sorts of ideas of sports as like a unifying force sometimes to a fault is really interesting and like here's where we get to what i think is like a story as old as time which is like uh, socialists tend to ruin socialism more than reactionaries do uh unless except for the cia like uh, just you know ignoring that part but like especially especially like you know inter-socialist movements and stuff like that so there's a dude named jc mitra very interesting guy i want to read a lot more about him but he was a he was a muslim communist who settled in bombay and he was a journalist he was a sports journalist he was like the indian clr james and he started an Indian football league in opposition to the white-dominated West India Football Association and started his own journal, The Sportsman. Um, its aims were to encourage physical culture in all branches. And so his thing was, like, he hated the idea of communal cricket. He's like, why do we not have an India team made up of, like, a big tent, like Muslim Sikhs, Hindus, Parsis, against the European team? Like, why do we not just field teams that aren't based on, like, religion or race? And his thing was like, if we can do this, if we can make this happen, Brit- the British are using uh, communal cricket as a form of colonial control. If we can somehow erase that and make it so that like the, the lines are a lot more drawn, we can actually turn cricket into uh, into something that can further a socialist revolution, right? And he would polemicize against the quadrangular in his journal uh, while also like providing typical sports shit, you know, analysis, scores, portraits, postmortems. Again, like I will go back to this. In 1937, like the the Bombay Congress had won in the elections, Hindus and Muslims had won in the city's uh, football tournament. This would have been a really good time for that to happen. But I love this. This is probably my favorite part of this whole thing. So you had a British team, a Muslim team, a Parsi team, and a European team. And instead of erasing these teams, they added a new team called the Rest, and that included Indian Christians, Buddhists, and Jews. The team was just called the rest. 
So, the expen- so they should have called them the Expendables or something. Like yeah. Were there yeah, enough? Were there enough there to were... make a team? Like that's not. Yeah. Like, were there, like were there? I was gonna like... ask how many uh, Indian Jews were there during the 1920s yeah. in, in India. I, I I didn't know of this actually. There's a record of at least one player, one Jewish player on these uh-huh. teams. <laughs> but I love that. I love that. It's like, oh yeah, here are our teams. There's you know Hindu, Muslim, European, uh, Parsi, and the rest. It's like the rest. Like yeah, that's the other that's, box. Yeah, yeah. On like a survey, yeah, then, <laughs> but in India, and the other box is like <laughs> Jews and Christians, <laughs> but as people. And it's like it's so funny to me that they're like, oh no, we're not gonna, we're just gonna put everyone else into a tent and give it the stupidest name ever that that still that existed up until and after partition, by the way. Mm. And yeah, like basically the the political successes of like the the Bombay Congress in 1937 inspired like a bunch of left wing writing about why they should get rid of cricket like if the demise of alien rule is imminent why not the extermination of an alien sport you know India must give up cricket an ar- aristocratic game meant for English nobility uh, meant for those who attend ceremonial parades rich dinners and pass away their tiresome hours in club rooms and cricket fields. Uh, a poor country like India cannot afford this leisure and pleasure, if it is a pleasure at all. Uh, it's part of a colonial ploy to tame the otherwise rebellious public. It's a game of classes and never... I love this because it's such a, like, Indian uncle rhyme. It's a game of the classes and has never appealed to the masses. You know what I mean? Like, that's something your fucking uncle would tell you at, like, an Eid dinner and think he's extremely clever about. It's associated with fe- feudalism and brought upon communalism. <laughs> um... These are all, by the way, like like socialist and left wing uh, polemics against cricket, which I I love it because it again illustrates like a a majority of like well to do socialists are extremely out of touch with reality because it's not it's not an aristocratic game in India, right? Like you could not make an argument that a game that's attended by a hundred thousand like poor workers who like jump into trees and like will climb the walls to like get a glimpse of it are like all well-to-do aristocrats um and also misunderstanding the lay of the land just this assumption that like working class people can't have fun you know yeah or i guess it's this assumption that working class like indians of that time are uh sort of like uh mesmerized by the game of cricket and they're just sort of they're just being like hypnotized by the colonizer i feel like that that I can I I can see that sentiment, but it does also it's a very reductionist view of, you know, just the masses in any way. Imagine letting cricket live in your head rent free this much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, imagine and they don't have any like critical thinking skills to comprehend that it did come in from the British. There was a part that I read about how um, student movements at the time also or not at that time later on rejected cricket because they thought that it was a colonial sport and like they shouldn't engage but it's like what are you gonna fill it with like it's something that people enjoy and have enjoyed for so long and that's exactly it like the bombay students union called for a ban oh by the way when they added the rest the quadrangular became the pentangular i forgot to add that part they renamed it yeah the bombay students union said the matches would be used for imperialist purposes and um to stay away from them would be an effective popular vote against the policies of the government and they they said that everyone must the enclosure must present a deserted appearance right but it's like again like i understand the sentiment here but it's at this point like 
cricket is an Indian game, right? You can't force a rejection of it outright. You can co-opt it to, like, you had two sides of this. You had, like, J.C. Mitra's side where he's like, oh, if we if we present a united front against, like, erasing communal uh, angles of cricket and simply having it, like, be India versus Europe, like, we can actually use this as a, as a great way to, like, push back against european rule and like foster interreligious harmony and on the other side you had people who were like oh no we must erase this from our cultural lexicon entirely despite the mm-hmm. fact that like hundreds of thousands of people at this point like love to play the game um and it sucks because jc mitra and and this was also an argument by the way that was said by leon trotsky i fucking hate leon trotsky to clr james where he said that like spectator sport was a ruling class conspiracy to keep the workers tame or that it was a hege- hegemonic device which promoted false consciousness. No, I guess like the big thing that I was thinking of too is just like um, cricket has lost its Britishness, right? Especially in diaspora, it's hundred percent mm-hmm. lost its Britishness. And so you even look at like the England national team and like the the composition of it, but also the ICC, the newest edition, I think is Afghanistan maybe but yeah um out of all the countries and so it's it's like this idea that cricket is kind of um empire strikes back right so it's like all of the the at least in England it's like the the British Asians who like came back through and dominate the game now but also there was uh, a few quotes that have circulated before where it's like no well British people like they love soccer more so like let us have cricket um and so i think I don't know. It's just an interesting discourse. Like, do I affiliate personally cricket with British people? Not really. That's based on my social location, but. And a big part of it is like, they've now opened up like basketball camps there. Right. Like there's a, there's a complicated relationship to like basketball camps in like second and third world countries, because you know, it's like on one hand it's, it's ostensibly providing economic opportunity, but on the other hand, it's like, you know, we talk about this in the baseball episode a lot. These can be like sweatshops and, you know, the people who come out of it, like there is still no Indian player in the NBA. I think this is the first season where that might happen. But like the rate of return for a country of even if 100,000 people participate, like you get one player, the others just lose out completely. In a, in a very classic way, too, the person who is uh, mediating this relationship between the NBA and India is Vivek, who owns uh, the uh, Sacramento Kings. So in like a very like classic way there's the sort of like the native intellectual to facilitate <laughs> you know what i'm saying to facilitate oh, I totally the new hege- hedge money yeah and like this is sort of it like in my opinion jc mitra had the right idea where it's like and this was also by the way true of the west indian a cricket team right where we're in the caribbean the west indies there was a united front presented against the british through cricket that like really like asserted um you know asserted a, a separation and a resistance to uh to british rule that like arguably had not been articulated since the days of uh to saint louverture right like it was it was an affirmation of like we are throwing you away and we're going to kick your ass while we do it um and again like i highly recommend the documentary fire in babylon as a as something to watch uh, to talk about this so it's like in my opinion like um jc mitra had the right idea but like he was outnumbered by his own socialists who told him no 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 we must reject cricket entirely we must reject this popular thing that we could easily hijack it was like also a very puritanical approach to like cricket like it's not a pragmatic thing to be like here's an instrument of class reproduction let us take it for ourselves and let us make sure that it becomes an instrument of like decolonization 
And like, you know, the British loved communal cricket because it was their way of like asserting control and like promoting racial tension and um, interreligious tension so that they could like fill the void and be the mediating force in that. Right. And this is where um, Jinnah, Jinnah's approach ended up being the most salient where because he was also a big fan of communal cricket, he used cricket as a way for like Muslims to uh, to articulate that Muslims are superior and self-sufficient they should turn their back on united india they saw a separate cricket team as a prelude to like a separate nation um and really hammered that really hammered that home again like you know because everyone's a snake like jinnah had his own paper right about you know you cricketers deserve congratulations and prizes without being infected with ideas of communal rivalry and politics right but like the whole paper was about how good uh, muslim cricketers were <laughs> and you could like cover it with stuff like this there was also like a another reason that like even well-to-do socialists would um be like would either divest from click cricket entirely or want to keep a communal cricket and it's because um a retrospective reading of cricket uh demonstrates that at this point hindus were victims rather than accomplices in what it promoted but like that's also untrue because like the Hindu cricket team had a bunch of issues around cast and subcast, right? Who could be the captain? Who could join the team? Uh, what cricketers were allowed to be like visually pleasant enough to be on the field, right? Like you would mm -hmm. never have, you had one Dalit player who was, you know, a champion, but like even he had to eat, eat food and drink tea outside of the tent with everyone else uh, away from everyone else, even when it was like raining and shit. And, like, you know, really, when you look at, at the way cricket was used to further the idea of, like, nation-states, um, the Muslims did win out. Uh, arguably, the socialists lost, uh, not arguably, the socialists lost heavily um, to the detriment of, like, the entire, like, Asian continent. Um, and, like, it it fed very deeply into the movement uh, for Pakistan. I mean, there's one thing here which I think is, is sort of worth mentioning though is unlike football or soccer unlike uh, other sports there was it was 12 years between a religious uh, an incident of religiously motivated violence in a cricket match which to me is is sort of spectacular like despite how crowded and rowdy it got it was actually a pretty calming force uh and like pretty free of of anything but the most like ostensible division and like cricket matches were also used to cool to cool off religious violence and religious warfare in cities like bombay where like you know there was a, a riot between muslims and hindus where people were getting killed and a cricket match was called and very quickly the riot was the riot ended as people just started going to the cricket match <laughs> like they just laid down their fucking molotovs and their sticks and just went to watch cricket and it, it really did, like, especially in the 1930s and 40s, end up being a cooling factor in a lot. And not to say there wasn't violence, but there ended up being a cooling factor in a lot of um, powder keg situations and stuff like that. Which, I mean, you could make the argument that it was, like, a, another way of colonial rule. You could also make the argument that, like, rivalries and, and hatred was articulated on the cricket field more than it was better than it was sort of on the streets, especially among Hindus and Muslims. I don't know if either of you have anything to say about that. I don't know. I'm stuck on the Trotsky thing. Oh. No, I'm just stuck on... No, I'm just like, he he just hated sports because he probably couldn't play. Like, Gandhi. Like, I have, I have the same... But no, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Etienne. You probably had a better point. I, I, 
no, no, no. That 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 we should we should dunk on Trotsky as much as we can in this podcast. Um, <laughs> I, it's just it's funny to to hear how much of a calming force it was. Like the first thing I could I thought of were like riots that ensue after sports games in America. Like mm. it seems to have the opposite effect on on uh, Americanized people in some way. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? I don't know if it seems like a calm sport because they had like a tea tent situation. Like whereas like I don't know other sports, people just go to back to the bench and seem angry. Like I, yes. I, I, <laughs> like a tea this, tent situation. I don't know. This is the part of the gentlemanly part of the, the gentlemanly sport that like useful, British right? kind of manners thing, right? right. That's what I it's think. Like it's the only good thing about the British stereotype, too, is this idea that they're polite. I, I've met a lot of British people, and I don't think that stands, but... <laughs> we'll go with um, yeah, no, and it's like, you also see this the world over, by the way, where, like, South Africa cricket is a is a powder keg in the same way rugby is in terms of casting off colonial rule. And weirdly, the Australians see themselves as a decolonial, see cricket as a decolonial force as well. Um, which the idea that the Australians were colonized by the British and not the Aboriginal people there is really funny to me. But like that's the frame cricket existed in Australia for a long time, which also speaks to like Australian uh, dominance as a sport as well, right? Yeah, I'm also still on the Trotsky thing because it's it's the most Trotskyist quote I think you could ever read. That it's just like cricket is a hegemonic device which promotes false consciousness, like. You don't know what that means. Yeah, you know I mean, like, like I just think don't. he couldn't yeah. hoop. Like, I just think Trotsky couldn't hoop. Like, I don't think he could do anything. So that's why he was just so anti-sports and said they were hegemonic. Because, like, I don't know, that's like a grad student take too, right? Like, you're sitting in your like seminar room and you're just like, oh, yeah. these sports like are an impediment to any like leftist movement, and it's just because you're like a weenie and can't play sports. Yeah, it's very, <laughs> it's very cynical. Oh, but like then when you really think about it, it's like also seems very yeah, like um, very very a lot of projection in that in that statement. I mean, yeah. Trotsky may have been may have been the first like Tumblr leftist. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like you would get ratioed on Twitter uh, if he, Twitter existed uh, back then frequently. Yeah, he was saying inflammatory things for engagement before we had algorithms. <laughs> I don't. <get> it. <laughs> um. He was the fucking merit of uh, yeah. <laughs> of um of his era. So, like winding down, um, sort of looking at cricket in the current day, and I think this is sort of key because it it tracks the emergence of like hegemonic neoliberal capitalism as like a, a motivating force in like Indian in the Indian economy and also Indian life, right? In the first decade after independence, uh, the Indian cricket team played 42 test matches, which is an insane amount. And on the world stage in the United Nations, it's basically legitimized both India and Pakistan overnight. A saying emerged for a while, every nation has a preoccupation. In China, it is Mao. In Latin America, it is revolution. In India, it is cricket. Yeah, you know, leave it, leave it to my people to underachieve um, frequently. But yeah, like... Um, and, you know, you can basically track the, the Indianization of cricket through the writings of visiting Englishmen who have viewed Indians taking over the game, it says here, with a mixture of horror and fascination. <laughs> India won the 1983 World Cup. Uh, 400 million people watched it. Um, they hosted the World Cup in 87 and 96. And uh, starting in 2000, India, uh, British cricketers actually started coming to India to learn how to bowl and play better, which obviously is an inversion of how it began, where uh, people, they say specifically bowl here, 
which is, you know, fascinating because the first thing Indians were taught to do when cricket emerged in India, they were taught by the white man to bowl. And and the first camps that opened up for British players in India were, were to learn how to bowl and bowl spin. You know, leftists uh, in the present day still killjoys. Uh, one literary critic said that the continuing popularity in, of cricket in India demonstrates the hegemony of colonial ideals and masculinity on the unconscientized post-colonial consciousness that's not even a fucking word others remarked that the india west indies test uh test is what you call a cricket match would be seen as the most subtly corrupting trick of neocolonialism and all credit to the ordinary workaday indians that their anti-colonialism does no more than occasionally chip the nose from the statue of some long departed voice viceroy basically like you know i love i love these like you mentioned like grad student nashua like it's Mm -hmm. a very grad student take because like a majority of grad students i know are very good at like articulating some like completely batshit like non-consequential issue with the world uh but also like don't go out and organize (laughs) i mean like it's very like armchair armchair political theorist uh and everyone thinks they're fucking edward said when they're not the Bol- the Bollywood stars who invest in cricket teams are doing more work for like the plight of of Indian people than anybody who's coming up with these takes, you know? Oh, absolutely, right. And it's like, who's the um, who's the uh, Pakistani uh, prime minister right now? Uh, Imran he's Khan. A, yeah, he's a famous cricketer, right? Yeah. Like he he leveraged is, and he's a by the way fucking disaster for the country in COVID. But like he um his entire political cachet was built on being a, a very famous cricketer right he won the cricket world cup for pakistan the the one time they won right mm-hmm. it's like that's huge and it's like okay cricket still has a, an intense amount of political power like why why don't people use it right it's almost like this idea of like whether or not it's a colonial it's a colonial imposition at this point is so moot because it is arguably one of the largest social movers in the entire subcontinent uh, if not the world actually um <clears throat> so and that you know sort of leads into my last thing here where it's like um you know the writer of this book uh has talked about you know cricket fits in easily with the rhythms of what is still in its essence an agrarian culture uh, he's an Indian. I don't know why he's talking about India on these terms. Uh, accustomed to thinking cosmic or calendric rather than clock time. Indians have no difficulty aimlessly filling up the hours. Consider how they will stop to gaze at the scene of an accident. Passengers leaning out of a bus window, joined by cyclists, motorcyclists, car owners, and pedestrians, all looking, looking, looking. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, he's saying that, like, you know, cricket with its, like, five day matches sort of works in the rhythms of a country that move slowly where people can actually devote more time for leisure and where people's like days are not filled up with work all the time right um but the most popular form of cricket in india now is the indian premier league 2020 cricket it's called um where games instead of five days are now three hours (laughs) and it's it's matched the like accelerating financialization of cities like bombay and um of cities like bombay right where it's like this huge or i guess mumbai i'm still in colonial mode here but like in calcutta where it's like now like capitalism is is at such an accelerating force in india that 
you're starting to see that sort of idea of like, oh, you can take five days for leisure, right? Mm-hmm. Just just hang out, drink tea, and watch cricket. Um, but now we have to compress it into three hours, of which one of an hour of that is just ad breaks for like Bollywood stars, and like it's high intensity, high glitz, high glam, right? Like the amount of money poured into the IPL is unbelievable. Um, and, and more people are watching it as a result because more people can make those three hours. Right. And it's like, it's really disquieting to think of that in like a country that has had a historically, you know, loose relationship with work. Right. Which, uh, and I mean that in a good way to, to like embrace something like three hour cricket after having 200 years of five day cricket. I don't want to sound like a cricket old head here, but like, you know what I mean? Like, so fucking quickly it seems that cricket and it is having the effect that we are saying that some of the you know sort of socialist uh no fun havers are trying to ruin is that there's a lot of like british um cricket purists that really don't like this version of the game so it's almost effectively being reappropriated by by uh the colonized um when i was watching uh i watched a things explained about cricket on netflix and probably the most British man I've ever seen uh, was talking about how, <laughs> quote, he isn't keen of the razzmatazz of the new game. He not only had broken teeth, since we already said that we're allowed to do phrenology on British people, um, not only did he have broken teeth in his lower jaw, but he also had an underbite, which I think added to the uh, Britishness of his of his, uh, of his accent. <laughs> but it, those, my point is, is those kinds of people are being pushed away from the game effectively with the IPLs sort of style so maybe it's a good thing like is the is the, like the british term for it munted teeth so he had munted teeth <laughs> <laughs> I think if we're gonna be if we're gonna be like appropriating and stuff but i guess yeah, yeah. i wonder with the three hour games is it because there was like an economic disruption when they have five hour games because people are five day games because people are taking like five days to dedicate to cricket instead of doing work from what I understand, um, the format was adopted in Britain to sort of curb the failure of British leagues, which were still running on like, I think they were actually running on one day games at this point to even try to get enough people in the stands. And it did see an economic rise in Britain and then was adopted eventually in India as like the format, from what I understand. Correct me if I'm wrong, Abdul. No, you're you're completely right. It's like, and it became, it, it became the Indian format, right? Like it's mm-hmm. pushed... It's no wonder that's pushed and invested in mostly by Indian billionaires and businessmen, right? Mm. Um, and it's like you, like, like we're recording this. This won't be out to like middle January at the earliest, right? But like we're recording this right now, while the the second largest strike in human history is currently happening in India, right? The last one happened two years ago, and it was also in India, um, <clears throat> where it's like. You know, there is an undercurrent where 250 million people can go on strike and take that time off and say, like, we demand better. Mm. Um, and, like, this this articulation of critic of cricket as, like, you know, something that can be used for leisure, that you don't have to work, that, you know, this, like, idea of, like, the eight-hour day, you know, eight hours for work, eight hours for play, eight hours for sleep, you know, is, is a very salient idea in a country that's historically had, like, a much more loose and, like, leisurely relationship to what to work of course you know the people who won like you know you're mentioning let's like it's going back to the colonizer it's going back to like not just colonizer but very specifically like neoliberalism Mm. very specifically this idea of like 
work until you die. Anything that you love, we're going to recuperate, monetize, and take the like joy out of it. Like no more tea tents, just ad breaks and <laughs> and like mm. these insane um, Fan- you know, Fanta ads. I'm assuming. Oh yeah, we we love our Fanta. You know the Germans, the Germans and the uh, the Germans and the Indians love Fanta uh, for wildly differing reasons. But like, <laughs> yeah, and like I don't know. It, that's the part that troubles me the most is like there is so much opportunity within sport, and like that's also kind of the heart of this podcast to build political and social revolutionary movements. You know, a lot of the fucking sports ball discourse, or like you know, sort of the the bread and circuses discourse, which I hate completely ignores because it's like again like no one is more puritanical than the grad student slash tumblr left right which unfortunately dominates a conversation about like the role of everyday social practices and social reproduction in like under capitalism right of which sports is one of them yeah everybody who writes on these platforms just thinks they're fucking the frankfurt school you know and like <laughs> breaking and breaking down media for us when they're not really even coming from like a intellect, like a fully intellectual background where they can speak from a an ivory tower. I don't know. Sorry that that thought broke down. What were we gonna say, Nashua? No, no, no. I was. Did I, I cut think you that's off? a oh, good no. point. No, no, no. You're fine. I think it's a good point. Um, the one thing though, I know this is a cricket episode. We focus on South Asia, but I don't know if anybody else caught how like in South Africa, like mining companies used cricket. That was like the weirdest thing to me because it's very different. Yes. Um, oh. I don't know if anybody I, else saw that during their research, but that's one thing that did stick with me like last week when I was looking where like it, the the way that cricket was used in South Africa was so different than uh, India where mining I, companies used it. I didn't look too deeply into that. Like uh, my research was mostly focused on the West Indies and India. Do you want to like quickly expand on that? Yeah, sure. I, I just like what I remember um, and I hope I don't get fact checked on this, but I believe I'm correct. So in South Africa, mining companies thought that it would be a good way of social control of the population. So also missionaries were involved in municipal authorities. So people who owned gold mines, to be specific, from what I remember, and they thought it was a good way to control the urban black population. And like they used that language. Um, and it was it was like very like white psychology hours where it was like to channel their the the urban quote unquote urban black populations. Um, like the the words that were used were basically like uncivility and like energy and like um i think i have the thing here it was so bad i was like oh pent up emotions and energies of workers black workers into harm into harmless channels and to make them uh productive with their physical strength it was it was so different than india I I did a bit of uh, research um, that has found uh, about Papua New Guinea, the way it was used for very similar reasons. And interestingly enough, in Papua New Guinea, after um, the game was adopted there, um, eventually uh, native people there began playing instead of playing the game with clothes that the missionaries gave them and the equipment started using their war clothes and started like doing the exact same tribal uh, performances that they would do normally within the game of cricket. So once again like it, it 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 the this game kind of like backfires on the colonizer and yeah. then, as abdul points out is being reappropriated as an argument by uh tumblr undergrad or graduate left. <laughs> i'm curious to see like i this might be another deep dive in research in the future but like if if the south african trade union movement ever 
ever like inserted themselves into that conversation or discourse right or like tried to take cricket back because the the trade union movement there is also like very built along racial lines Mm -hmm. and is like very very interesting um yeah do do we have any parting thoughts on cricket I think it's fine. I think I like, <laughs> like, like um, I learned a lot. Thank you. Uh, I I think people. I think people should just let people have fun. I think it can be reclaimed. So like, I think it can be reclaimed. Um, I think it's fun to like be better at something than like the colonizer. So like, it's great that British people are not the strongest or best at it anymore. Oh hell yeah, yeah. I'm pretty much in line with that. Like, let people have fun. Also, like. I've always said that, like, leftists should have more of an engagement in sports because they are, like, they are a pre, like, an already existing, like, expression of, like, social, of, like, social movements and especially in a lot of cases, like, civil unrest and, like, working class identities, uh, not just white working class identities as we see with mm-hmm. cricket, obviously, right? Uh, or yeah. basketball for that matter, but, yeah. But that, but it, that is important, especially with the debate online about this separation between leftist intellectuals and the working class. Would, would understanding sports as a mediating political force not be the most productive way to connect with the working class as somebody who goes to fucking Harvard or whatever? Shout out, uh, dumb and awful, by the way. Hell yeah. Um, um yeah. And... Wait, do one of them go to Harvard? We'll talk about it later. No, well, they're just, <laughs> they, they, they fished, they kind of fished the entire, twi- uh, the entire, uh, Twitter platform with a tweet about, uh, connecting with working class oh, people. We, do, yeah, I, we'll yeah, talk yeah, about it later. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, but no, no, but like, okay, one thing that's distinct about cricket and diaspora is that, um, in Canada, so like we see in Scarborough, Brampton, Mississauga, and I, I'm pretty sure other places where there's big South Asian populations, it's happening. And then in England, we see in like Bradford and a few other places, a lot of taxi drivers who are like so disenfranchised, not unionized, um, who are who who don't have other means of socially connecting and are not like embraced by the nation, right? They have like these like they get treated like shit, um, called packies in England, things like that. Like especially yep. like a few decades ago can be together on the field or pitch and like still like reimagine and like have sentiment to like their homeland but also just like have community through sport and i think a lot of leftists forget that and like also like they don't get to like be that active in the type of labor they do right like working like 20 hour days driving a taxi like like getting a weekend to like hang out with your friends and like play a sport and like reimagine it and like if you drive through scarborough on weekends you see a lot of like you see Sikh people you see muslim people hindu people they just meet on a field and just pick it up and play and like i think it's very important in that way and i think um a lot of like disconnected people or hyper online people don't realize like how community is made and remade through a sport like this for people who are so disenfranchised, like service workers that you don't recognize. So like truck drivers in Canada, a lot of them are South Asian of South Asian descent, especially Indian and Punjabi um, taxi drivers. And like, that's like a social element of engagement that they can engage in, in a society that doesn't really have other outlets for them to engage in meaningfully. Yeah. Ho- um, hockey being hockey being a very hard sport to uh, make your way into. It, ha- mm. it has a lot of barriers, especially if you come from a uh, lower socioeconomic status. And like, I, you know, speaking of Mississauga, Nashua, like, you know, I, I grew up very close to like Roche court, which is where like all the new immigrants, uh, mm-hmm. moved to. Right. Um, and you earn mills or whatever. And like, if you went to the courtyard, like all the new immigrant kids would be 
who are you know not all from from pakistan but like you know from like a lot of them were like golf packies a lot of them like came via dubai a lot of them you know are, are also from india and tanzania would like be playing cricket together right that was one of the ways that like new kids like would bond and like be able to like make friends is like on a concrete courtyard in like the middle of what is effectively like you know mississauga's most underserved uh, like housing yeah. project right and imagine like taking that away from them because some people in a seminar said like it's a colonial sport that entered our countries to like brainwash us yeah it's it's absolutely batshit and like yeah you know i guess that goes back to the thesis of this podcast about you know the politics and and social uh the economic uh, the economics and social economy and political economy of sport is like you know, I think one of the most valuable and under-examined things that we can look at, like, as leftists in terms of building a, a proper left project and seeing how sports have been, like, used oftentimes in very good and bad ways, right? Like, mm-hmm. cricket, to me, is, like, a, such a perfect example of that. And with that, you know, thank you for listening. Nushwa, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me on the internet. Um I have a public Twitter account. Don't find my private one. There's too many people there. My public one is uh, N-A-S-H-W-A-K-A-Y. And you can follow my podcast, um, H-A-B-I-B-T-I-B-L-E-A-S-E, Habibti Bleas. It's part of the Harbinger Media Network. And it was honestly really fun to hang out with two other Harbinger people on a Sunday. Thanks so much. I, yeah, I definitely, I definitely follow your private Twitter account. I, should okay. I hit the unfollow button? No, no, button? no. Yeah. Um, it was a public Twitter account, and then I reactivated my blue check. Don't worry. It's, it's not. It's, it can't. It's not private anymore. There's over three thousand people on it. Like it's, it's not private I'm, anymore. I'm it's, writing, it's private for new people. Sorry. Go ahead. I'm writing. I'm writing regularly for Jacobin now, and I'm just like wondering when that blue check will arrive, and I'm dreading that day. Um, yeah. Like it's like. I, I hate it. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Socialist Raptor and Aton. It's with how many A's? It's with six A's you can find me. It's spelled <laughs> E-Y-T-A-A-A-A-A-A-N. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for doing this, Nashua, and bringing together the sort of Harbinger media net. Like, we've been recording this in advance, and then we're going to put it out in January. So it feel And then I, would, I assume that all the Harbinger people would come and you know with their pleasantries and say hi to me but now uh we've we've done the process a little bit early so i appreciate that uh we'll be back at you next week Uh, we love you all thank you for listening and uh take it easy bye